Well, I had selected my text for tonight um, uh, really a couple weeks ago, and certainly before Dave, our brother Dave Huther, died this past Sunday. Um, it was in the good providence of God, though, that this was a text that was very important to Dave and to their family, and so we talked about that a little bit in the service yesterday. I was actually having second thoughts about this passage until I found that out, I because the events that we're looking at actually happened on Thursday night, leading into the early early morning hours of Friday morning. But I still think it's helpful for us to set us up for, uh, again, the cross work of, of Jesus Christ. So again, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 26, look on with somebody else. But here's the scene in Matthew 26, and where we're going to pick it up. Jesus, in, in His humanity, fully God, fully man, but in His humanity, He is in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. His, his, he's actually sweating blood. He's in such anguish in his soul. And so there's a, there's a medical term for this, hematidrosis, where, where you're, when you're under, under such duress, under such stress and, and emotional and mental distress that it becomes so acute that, that the, the blood vessels near your sweat glands begin, begin to constrict and dilate and, 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 it, and you can actually bleed through your sweat glands. So that's, that's what's happening to Jesus. He's physically coming apart at the seams because of grief in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sorrowful and troubled, the text says, to the point of death. And so God actually has to send an angel to minister to Jesus to, just to keep his physical body alive so that he can make it to the cross because the grief is so intense. And so what is it that's shaking Jesus to the very core of his being here in the garden. It's something that comes into his view and it's, it's the cup. We think cup. What is so intimidating about that? We think cup, a cold drink on a hot day. This is not the cup of refreshment. This is the cup of punishment. It's the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus knew that this was coming. This is why He came. He came to go to the cross and to suffer for our sins and to take the just punishment that we deserve for all the wrong we have done. He took it on Himself and to face God's wrath in our place. So He sees this cup. He's going to drink the wrath of God in concentrated form on the cross. And though He is perfect without sin, Again, in His humanity, He will be punished for our sins. And it's that thought that so, is so troubling to Jesus as we find Him here in Matthew 6, 26, troubled, sorrowful, to the point of death. And so the cup is set before Jesus. It's the Father's will for the Son to drink this cup and to drink it all the way to the bottom, all the way to the dregs, that sludge at the bottom. He's going to drink it all. And yet Jesus is perfectly obedient, and yet He's also mysteriously in agony over this. So you see it, He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. And again, Father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, Your will be done. And after that, we'll see, Jesus gets up. He wakes His sleeping disciples who can't stay awake. Middle of the night, and he draws the cup to his lips, as it were, and he and he he walks right into the hands of the one he knows will betray him, and into the mob that's with him, and and these guys that are coming to take him by force, and that's so that's the scene that sets us up for where we're going to be looking 
tonight, and we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 40, 47. And so there are two dominant figures that, that we'll see in this scene tonight. The first is clearly Jesus Christ. He's the central figure. He's the centerpiece of this passage. The second figure is all of us. It's humanity. I mean, we'll see, we'll see Judas and we'll see the disciples and we'll see soldiers, but really it's, it's all humanity and it's Jesus. And, and, and in a sense, this scene is going to represent man at his finest. There, man, humanity is arresting God, triumphing over God, taking him by force. And so it seems like it's man at his best, but it's really, as we'll see, tragically, man at his absolute worst. And in a sense, it looks like Jesus is at his lowest point. A sad, pathetic scene as, be, as he's being arrested and carried away to be falsely accused and punished. But really, this is Jesus at its best, at his best. In the end, we'll be embarrassed for mankind, but we're going to be enamored with Christ and His glories that we see even in the sufferings. Because the most impressive show of force in this passage is not what the angry mob is able to do with Jesus. The most impressive thing that we'll see is what Jesus does not do. What He, what he chooses not to do. What He had every right to do. What He could have done. What we think He should have done. But He's, He doesn't do. And it's in what He doesn't do that again we'll see the greatness and the goodness and the grace and the glory of Christ in this passage. So we're just going to say four things that Jesus doesn't do here. The first thing, Jesus didn't run. He did not run. And, and, and you think, and this, we set it up, is why did Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane to pray? Why, why is He there on this night? Why, why not go somewhere else? Not, why not go back to Bethany? Why not go out in the wilderness when nobody will ever find him? Why go here? And the answer is very simply because this is where he always went. And it's because he knew that Judas would know exactly where to find him. He's not hiding. He's not playing hide and seek. He's not playing catch me if you can. He, he's going to where he knows Judas will be, go looking for him. John 8, 2 says that Jesus often met with his disciples there. This is kind of their default place. You have your places that you go to eat and restaurants you go and parks you go and play with the kids and places you frequent and we know we can find you there. This is where everybody knew they could find Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he, Judas knew Jesus' habits. And Jesus knew that he would go looking for him there. So in verse, verse 45, Jesus is returning. Let's pick it up there. Jesus is returning to His disciples who are snoozing again for the third time here. And He goes to them. And He came to the disciples and said to them, verse 45, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And what you see just in that is Jesus is in charge. Not a victim of circumstances. He's, he's, he's accomplishing a plan. He's on a mission. He knows exactly what's happening before Judas and the mob ever arrives on the scene. Jesus is saying, it's time. He said this, if we've studied through the Gospels and you've worked through Gospels, you know he's 
Jesus frequently said in the, in, the, in the weeks and months leading up to his passion, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And here he's basically saying, it's time. My betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, and so while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Don't, don't rush past that. One of the twelve. One of Jesus had his closest of friends, closest of followers, men that he had spent so much time with, and it and it and it, it just it was so close to these twelve disciples. And here it's one of the twelve. This is just to highlight how wicked this betrayal is. Are you kidding me? One of the twelve, not one of the ones that was healed and and kind of had the fringe benefits of following you, Jesus, and and kind of fickle disciple. This is one of the closest of the inner circle. One of the twelve, Judas, came and with a great he came with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the priests and the elders of the people. So again, Jesus had opportunity to get out of dodge. He, he, he could have run away before he was arrested. He had this internal divine police scanner. He's God. He knows what's in man. He knows what people are thinking. He, he can see things coming. He knows, he knows who's coming. He knows where they'll look. He knows when they'll get there. He knows everything about them. He knows how many there are. But Jesus didn't come to run from them. He didn't come to run from the cup. He came... To drink it. He came to die. This is all part of the plan. My Savior, who had every reason to run, did not run. He knew he didn't deserve what he was getting. Punishment. Wrath. Death. He knew that you and I don't deserve what we would get. Life. Righteousness. Grace. Reward. But in love, he didn't run. But he actually went out and met his betrayer. And he just, in that instant, he's knocking over basically the first domino that's going to set everything into motion and the accomplish, accomplishment of our salvation. I just say, if Jesus knew the kind of wicked sinners that you and I are, and he didn't run. Why do you think he's any different today? If you do not know the grace and forgiveness of God in your life. If you if you feel crushed by maybe a guilty past. A broken life. If you're convinced that God would never ever love somebody like you. I just listen to what we see here. Jesus did not run. That should be good medicine for our souls. And He had you in His heart. He loved you to the end. And He loves you now. And He stands ready to wash away your filth. To forgive your wrongdoing, your sin. He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you abundant life. Let this speak to you that Christ walked towards His betrayer. He didn't run. And He had every right to. Second thing that we'll see Jesus did not do is He didn't resist he didn't resist. G- Judas knew Jesus' power. He saw Jesus calm the raging seas. He, he, he saw Him walk on water. He saw Him feed thousands. He saw Him heal the sick and raise the dead, raise Lazarus from the dead just days earlier. 
Judas knew how powerful Jesus was. So he brings this, the text says, great crowd of Roman soldiers and temple guards, hundreds of soldiers, probably maybe even thousands of men in this crowd that are coming, this mob that's coming to arrest Jesus. And they have torches and clubs and swords. This is an intimidating group of people. But what does that, what does that say to us about how Judas is thinking? Well, it says, it says several things, but just let me just draw attention to one is it, it shows how, how much Judas underestimated Jesus' power. He thought that could be enough. That, that if Jesus resisted, that he could somehow overpower him with this, this force, this military force. And he, and it's ridiculous. This great crowd, this mob with their swords and clubs, it's like two little kids with little pea shooters, they're saying, I can take on the United States Armed Forces. I mean, it's just, it's, there's no comparison. But Judas thought this was enough. All the armies of the world at all times in human history could be assembled right here. And if Jesus wanted to resist, they wouldn't have a chance. He's God. And so... We, we see in, in John 18, in one of the parallel accounts of this scene, Jesus says, when they come, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says two words. Really, it's one in the Greek. I am. I am. And you know what happens? These big, burly, muscle-bound soldiers, intimidating soldiers with swords and gloves, they just hit the deck and they fall down for fear. <laughs> Jesus, he's not, he's not, it's no, there's no comparison. He's not overpowered here. But he doesn't resist. He doesn't resist. Verse 48, now the betrayer has, had given him a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And he said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus didn't resist. He willingly just put his hands out to be bound, to be led away. This is all part of the plan again. And, and what's especially amazing is that Jesus doesn't resist even when he's betrayed by a friend. There's nothing that hurts and cuts deeper. Betrayal by a friend. Someone close to you. David spoke often of this in the Psalms. It's just terrorized his soul. Betrayed by a friend. And, and this cuts deep. He, and Jesus, Jesus says to him, and he, this is what does he say to Judas? Verse fifty: Friend, do what you came to do. Even in the very act of betrayal, Jesus calls Judas his friend. I don't think he's sarcastic in this. I don't think he's saying, "Yeah, some kind of friend you are." I think this is a line of mercy. He's reaching out to Judas. Judas, think about what you're doing. He's trying to pull his heart in. But he's not just betrayed by a friend, he's betrayed with, by a kiss, this gesture of affection. This is the same gesture in Acts 20, verse 37. The Ephesian elders are hugging and kissing Paul as he, as he departs, and they know they'll never see him again. Same, same in the story of the prodigal son as the, this rebellious son comes home, and the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. This is affection, and this is how he's betrayed, though. So, so this greeting, Rabbi, Judas's kiss, it just heightens again the sick nature of this betrayal. But what it also does is show us the vastness of the love of Christ. 
The deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Oh, it's the love of Christ is seen in the fact that Jesus does not resist, even when he's betrayed by a friend. He doesn't resist. The third thing, Jesus did not retaliate. He didn't retaliate. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who this is. John and Mark do, but we know who it is. It's Peter. This is obvious. He's impulsive Peter. And so he draws the sword thinking, It's go time. This is it. I'm going down. We're not going down with a fight, but he, this is probably, he's thinking this is probably a suicide mission. Thousands of, hundreds, thousands of soldiers perhaps. And he's going for the, we, we know in, from the parallels that he doesn't attack a soldier even. He attacks a slave who's probably not even armed. So he's not that bold and courageous. But he knows he's going to be killed. But he, he, it's time. But, but Jesus diffuses the situation, actually picks up the guy's ear, heals him instantly on the spot. And he says, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. What is he saying by that? He says, it's not a call to pacifism. That's not what, it's not a political message and he's not warning about the danger of sharp objects you're going to poke your eye out with that thing that's not the point his point is that peter is assuming that jesus is going to retaliate he's going to defend himself but he's not it's not why jesus came he didn't come to die in some heroic act of self-preservation he came to lay his life down on the cross so he, he didn't come to retaliate his death would make it clear that he didn't come to serve himself or to save himself, but to give his life as a ransom for sinners. That's how Jesus would, would die. And so Jesus is saying, do you, do you think I can't defend myself, Peter? You think I couldn't retaliate if I wanted to? Verse 53, do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, Peter? A legion is 6,000. So you have 12 legions, 72,000 angels. That's unfathomable power. In 2 Kings 19, you have one angel who wipes out an army of 185,000 people. you got 72,000 angels. And so what is Jesus saying? This is it's not even a match, Peter. If you think that's the issue, you're, you're wrong. And, and Jesus is correcting him. He has immense power at his disposal but he refuses to use it for his own advantage here because he has a mission. And, and verse 54, but how then could the scriptures, should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Again, the sufferings, the betrayal, the death of God's Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. This is the cup that Jesus was to drink. So he goes on. He doesn't retaliate. You know what that says to us is we don't have to either. We don't have to retaliate. Now, I don't mean by that that Jesus is simply giving us an example here of being, be nice to people who are mean to you. That's not my point. It's much deeper than that. I mean that the gospel tells us that we're, we're undeserving sinners. We have no rights to be defended. The worst offenses done to us pale in comparison to the offense that we've committed against God. Yet He doesn't retaliate. We've been fully pardoned. How could we then not forgive others? 
And so I know we, we can see, we can rage in anger, we can hold grudges, those who've wronged us. We can smolder inside or we can get violent and vulgar in our language. Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't demand his rights so that you and I don't have to hold on to offenses done to us. We can be free to forgive. Last thing. Jesus did not rant and rave. He didn't rant and rave. When Jesus is confronted by these crowds of soldiers, how does he respond? He doesn't go off on them. He doesn't go into this angry tirade. He doesn't just come down on them. He just simply points to the absurdity of what they're doing. Verse 55, if you come out as against a robber, the word robber is not just like a petty thief. It's a, it's a word describing a violent, rebellious kind of person, criminal. Same word used to describe uh, the, the Barabbas. Barabbas is the one who was arrested for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. And so this is the word he's saying. You're treating, if you come out like I'm a violent Violent, dangerous criminal with swords and clubs to capture me. I never carried a weapon. I'm not a revolutionary. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. So, Jesus is arrested. He, he, he barely speaks a word. He's not taken kicking and screaming. Peter later writes, as he, and he saw this unfold, the scene unfold. He later writes of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't threaten the mob who came against him. And from now on, if we, if we were able to walk through the story further, we see that Jesus really hardly utters any more words. Isaiah foretold this long before, that like a... Lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. And ultimately, Jesus' silence again is due to his obedience to the Scriptures. Verse 56, he knew this was according to God's plan, but all this took place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, perhaps, the suffering servant. or Zechariah 13, 7, the sheep being scattered when the when, when the shepherd is stricken, that's the very thing that happens after verse 56 is that then all the disciples left him and fled. Well, this is come back to where we began. In this scene, we see Jesus is everything that we're not. He's fearless, so we don't have to be afraid now or eternally. I, I asked, I meant to print it out, but I'm just going to look on my phone. If you weren't here yesterday, Ed Sherwood read the last text that he received from Dave Huther on the day before he died. And he said this, Ed, this is Dave. I seem to have come to a resolution that my salvation is because of Christ. Not because of anything I have done in Christ. And he said this, and I can relax and let go and not worry that I've missed it. You see, because Jesus was fearless and walked to the cross and stood in our place, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus is a willing sacrifice for our sins, so we don't have to wonder whether He's a willing Savior of us today. He's proven that. He suffered unjustly so that we could be counted as righteous. He put on chains so that you and I can be free, free from the penalty of sin and death, free from... From judgment, free from guilt, free from enslavement to sin, fear, anger, bitterness, addictions, unforgiveness, lust, jealousy, love of money, and any other thing that entraps us. 
He suffered alone so you and I would never have to be alone. Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. And so we're going to come in just a moment to the table and remember that together and then we'll sing more of this work that Christ has done. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for drinking the cup of wrath for our sins so that we could drink the cup of blessing of your righteousness. You've traded cups with us, Lord. And thank you for suffering willingly. You could have fled. You could have fought. But out of love for us, you did not. Thank you for laying your life down of your own accord. It was not taken from you. You laid it down willingly. You had authority to lay it down and you had authority to take it up again. Thank you for the love displayed in this scene that we just saw in Matthew 26. Let us go and meet my betrayer. Lord, as we come to the table now and remember the blood of Christ that was shed, the body of our Savior broken for us, may we eat so with gratitude in our hearts for the grace that's displayed through the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.